Hello and good morning and uh, happy new year and welcome to Cedar Season uh, in Austin, Texas. So some of you know what I'm talking about. Glad to be back with you. Carrie and I were out last week. That announcement that Liam mentioned was about our upcoming marriage event that's happening February 26th and 27th. So we did something for our, our great and amazing singles back in the summer coming up in February. Is it a great event for our, our married folk? It's going to be totally different than what we've ever done before and uh, uh, a lot of different kind of content and events and things associated with it. So more to come. I think our registration will be, on it, be up next week, but please make plans now that Friday night, February 20th. 26th and Saturday morning, February 27th. There you go. So this morning we come to our last look at the life of David, something we began last summer and then we came back to here uh, later in the fall. And uh, our scripture reading this morning is going to be from the book of Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and a bit from 29. Here we go. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. David summoned all the officials of Israel to Jerusalem, the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of the army divisions, the other generals and captains, the overseers, the royal property and livestock, the palace officials, the mighty men and all the other brave warriors in the kingdom. David rose to his feet and said, my brothers and my people, it was my desire to build a temple where the ark of the Lord's covenant, God's footstool, could rest permanently. I made the necessary preparations for building it, but God said to me, you must not build a temple to honor my name, for you're a warrior and have shed much blood. Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, has chosen me from among all my father's family to be king over Israel forever. For he has chosen the tribe of Judah to rule, and from among the families of Judah he chose my father's family. And from among my father's sons, the Lord was pleased to make me king over all Israel. And from among my sons, for the Lord has given me many, he chose Solomon to succeed me on the throne of Israel and to rule over the Lord's kingdom. Then David turned to the entire assembly and said, My son Solomon, whom God has clearly chosen as the next king of Israel, is still young and inexperienced. The work ahead of him is enormous, for the temple he will build is not for mere mortals. It is for the Lord God himself. Using every resource at my command, I have gathered as much as I could for building the temple of my God. And now, because of my devotion to the temple of my God, I'm giving all of my own private treasures of gold and silver to help in the construction. Then David praised the Lord in the presence of a whole assembly. O Lord, the God of our ancestor Israel, may you be praised forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Wealth and honor come from you alone, for you rule over everything. Power and might are in your hand, and at your discretion, people are made great and given strength. I know, my God, that you examine our hearts and rejoice when you find integrity there. You know, I have done all this with good motives, and I have watched your people offer their gifts willingly and joyously. O Lord, the God of our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, make your people always want to obey you. See to it that their love for you never changes. Give my son Solomon the wholehearted desire to obey all your commands, laws, and decrees, and to do everything necessary to build this temple for which I have made these preparations. And that's 
God's Word to us this morning. Now, you, you know, as we've been going through this, you can see there's so much material in the life of David. There's more than any other figure, not just in the Bible, but in all of ancient literature. And, and so what we've said is that if we really want to understand what the Bible is and, and what the Bible means, we'd better get a good grasp on who David was and what David really means. And this morning, we come to the second of the two endings that the Bible writers give us to David's life. Now, the first one, which we looked at a few weeks ago in the book of Samuel, uh, we saw then. But this morning, we're coming to the second of those two endings from the writer of the book of Chronicles. And here, we're looking at the very last moments, the very last speech of David's life. And it's amazing to look at because, because here, David knows his time is at an end. And David is determined to make his moment count. Here, David gives the speech of a lifetime. And what we see in it is surprising. It's revolutionary in many ways. And it's challenging all at once. Because as much as David's going to show us what he believes it really means to follow God, he also raises and presses on some tensions that would have made those people in Israel uncomfortable in their day. And can still make us uncomfortable and challenged in our day to day. So let's look now at what David does in these last moments of his life and explore the tensions that he raises along the way. We'll look at first David's greatest problem, his final provision, and ultimately his visionary prayer, or if you'd like, person versus presence, magic versus supernatural, inspiration versus consecration. Let's begin here in number one. And look at David's greatest problem. Now, David's got a problem here. It's bigger than Goliath. Uh, It's more significant than the persecution of Saul. It's affecting him more than the the lack of approval he got from Jesse. It's bigger than that whole deal with Bathsheba and with the census later. What was it? Well, David's greatest problem as a man, a leader, and as especially as a king is this, and you probably saw it coming. David's about to die. He's about to die, which raises the question, what's going to happen to the nation, right? I mean, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to this community of God followers? Because there's never been a time of unity and prosperity like what Israel's seen under David's decades of leadership. David's won battle after battle. The nation's been blessed. Their borders are secure. And as you can see from the passage, David and the nation have got money in the bank. They're wealthy, stable, secure. And so now as David in his last moments of his life, as he's about to die, it would be natural to wonder, easy to be nervous if you were a leader in Israel as you looked out of the future and you asked, what's going to happen to the kingdom? Who's going to lead this thing? What's going to hold us together when David's gone? And David gets right to answering their question when he says this. He says, my son Solomon, whom God has clearly chosen as the next king of Israel, is still young and inexperienced. So, uh, you know, he's basically vocalizing the water cooler chatter about Solomon, right? I mean, yep, the kid's gonna, he's new, it's his first time behind the wheel of the kingdom, right? Give him some space. But, but you'll notice here what David doesn't do next because what he doesn't do next is what kings after David would actually do. And what David doesn't do next is what makes David so great. David here, he doesn't threaten the people at the end of his life by saying something to the effect of, you know, serve Solomon 
or else. Or, you know, if you don't serve Solomon, it's like you're insulting me, right? He doesn't manipulate them by saying, the Lord your God will smite you, right? If you don't follow Solomon or follow my son. So what does he do? What does he point to as what is going to hold the kingdom together? What's the whole speech about? I mean, what does he go on and on about? What is it? It's the temple, right? It's building a temple for Yahweh, creating space for the worship of the one true God. It's amazing. David doesn't point to himself, right? Doesn't point to his son, but he points to building a temple. Now, you may look at this and think, well, of course he's just doing that. I mean, he's just wanting a memorial to himself after he's gone. Sort of an old school version of name the stadium after the big donor alumni, right? You've seen that before. Or maybe, maybe you think this is kind of like the same thing as the, the ancient pharaohs would do when they would build their pyramids. You know, isn't that what he's doing? No, not at all. And not by a long shot. So what is David doing here? Well, it is smart, it is shrewd, but it's more than that. Hear this. It's spiritually significant because what David is doing is he is speaking to, he is answering the unspoken question of every person in Israel then and the question of every person who follows God today. And it's the question that you ought to be asking when you walk into any church, into this church. And the question is this. What holds a spiritual community together? That's the question. What holds a spiritual community together? What's the most important thing about a spiritual community? Because that's what Israel was supposed to be, right? A light to the nations, a hope to the Gentiles, and a hope to the world. They were a spiritual community then, and we, as a church, as the people of God, are a spiritual community today. So, what holds us together? What makes a church, a church. What makes us, us? Well, by pointing to the temple, this is amazing. David's showing us what holds a spiritual community together is not a person, but it's a presence. It's not a person. It's a presence. Not a king to follow, right? But a God to worship. See, David's about to die. The people are wondering how they can possibly go on without him. And David is saying this. He's saying, if And it's a big if, and we'll come back to it. But if you've got the presence of God in your midst, you've got all you need. You've got all you need. That's what holds a spiritual community together. That's what makes a church a church. It's the presence of God in our midst. And conversely, the opposite is therefore true. If we are not creating space in our hearts, in our lives, in our local church for the presence of God, what we're doing, what we're building, it won't last. It won't last. See, we don't just meet to meet here, do we? We don't just have a church for church's sake. No, no, no. David's saying this is great. Say what my nation needs the most, what people's lives need the most, and what makes our nation, what makes it be able to last isn't a person, but it's the presence of God. Now, he's not saying you don't need people in your lives, but what he is saying is this. He's saying, don't make an idol out of me. Don't make an idol out of another person and think, if I don't have that person, right, that leader, uh, maybe that minister or deacon or my community group leader changes, things are going to fall apart and it won't be the same, right? Now, listen, of course it won't be the same, right? Of course it won't be the same. People, they can come and go. 
but the presence of God, if we have it in our lives, if we have it in our church, is what's going to hold us together this year. See, David knows this. He sees this. He grasps this. This is David's legacy, not pointing to himself, not pointing to his son, but to the presence of God as a sustaining factor in a spiritual community. And because of this, this is remarkable. Can you see David's not gathering power as a leader, is he? No, he's giving power away. He's giving it away. He's pointing to something beyond himself. And before we move on, let me just apply this principle not only to our church, but perhaps to your life as a leader, whether you're a leader in your home or in your job, in the community somewhere, on your sports team at your school, or maybe you're just trying to lead yourself today, and that's good enough. But no matter where you are, let me apply it to you like this. A man by the name of Henri Nguyen was a Dutch Catholic priest and theologian who, after teaching for about 20 years at Notre Dame, Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard, he left an incredibly successful academic career to serve the mentally handicapped community at a place called Large Daybreak Community in Toronto, Canada. And he says the experience of serving the least of these, these mentally handicapped folks, for more than a decade fundamentally changed him. And he wrote about it in a book called In the Name of of Jesus. And this is what he discovered about how to lead any kind of community, and especially spiritual communities. He said this, one of the greatest ironies of the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation of power, political power, military power, economic power, or moral and spiritual power, even though they continued to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his power, but emptied himself and became as we are. The temptation to consider power an apt instrument for the proclamation of the gospel is the greatest of all. With this rationalization, crusades took place, inquisitions were organized, Indians, he means Indians of India, were enslaved, positions of great influence were desired, and much moral manipulation of conscience was engaged in. What makes the temptation of power, of pointing to self, so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. Jesus asks, do you love me? We ask, can we sit at your right hand in your kingdom? Let me ask you, in your own home, with your spouse or do your children, do you just try to rule by power, fear maybe? Or do you point people to the presence of God? In your business, do you control your employees, co-workers? Or do you serve them by doing what David did, making your workplace about something greater than yourself or making money even? When it comes to your politics, uh uh-oh. Do you think if my party had power, right? If my candidate gets elected, things would be right. Oh, that's making an idol out of a party or a person. David's saying here, don't do that. He's saying what's going to hold our nation together is in the outgoing party or the incoming party. It's the presence of God. See, And when it comes to being a part of a church, are you, are you here because you've answered Dr. Nguyen's question? You just love Jesus. You just love Jesus. And you just want his presence in your life. See, after 40 years of leading, David's found out the hard way. This, this leadership thing, right? I mean, this spiritual community thing, it's not about my power or ability. 
It's about God's presence. That's what holds us together. And church, if we do well this year, if we look back at the end of the year and we say we've done well, it'll be because we've pointed people to something greater than ourselves, greater than a church, but to the presence of God. And if you do well this year, it'll be because you pointed those around you to someone greater than you. What holds us together, what makes us us, not, a, not people with power. Thank God but God's presence if we have it. That's number one. So David, therefore, number one, he solves his greatest problem, the future of his nation, with number two, number two, his final provision. Because he does something next. And you can see from the passage that essentially what David does next is he offers up his wealth, all his money to the people. This speech is sort of his last will and testament. He's giving his fortune away to provide for the beginning of the construction of the temple. But hear this. It wasn't just funding for a building. No, David says, I'm giving this to create space for one thing in particular. And he tells you what it is in verse 28. He says, it was my desire to build a temple where what? What, what, what? The ark, the ark of the Lord's covenant. God's footstool could rest permanently. And when David said this, oh, there was likely a cheer, yes. And then a, whoa, whoa, because a temple was one thing. A temple's great, but a place for that ark, oh, That was something else. And if you'd have been there knowing what those people knew, having been through what they had been through, you would have loved the idea of a temple. But then when David got to that part about the ark, you would have drawn back and said, whoa, David, slow down there, big fella. Maybe, maybe not. Why? It was because of what the ark was and what the ark meant. So what was it? What did it mean? Give me three minutes to set this up. The Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box that Moses had made. It was overlaid with gold. It held inside of the Ten Commandments, among other things. And up until this time in Jewish history, it had been kept in what was called the tabernacle, basically this big, movable, mobile tent. And the middle section of the tent was a place called the Holy of Holies, and that's where they kept the Ark. And you may know that on one day, one time a year only, the Jewish high priest could, on the day of Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, he could enter the Holy of Holies at one time with the blood of a sacrificial animal. He would sprinkle it over the ark and then on a place called the mercy seat. And then that one time a year, God's presence, his direct presence, his glory would come down. Now, that's what the ark was. That's amazing. And that right there was on one hand why you would maybe lean towards keeping the ark in the temple. But that's not all that the ark did or meant because if you know your Jewish history, You know, that Israel had had quite a challenging, even offensive relationship with that ark. Because after Moses was there, there was a guy named Joshua who came in. Joshua led the people into their promised land. And they carried the ark into a promised land. And they walked around this huge city called Jericho. And when they marched around it with the ark, with the box, the walls fell. And Israel won a great victory. But flash forward, years later, in the years before David was born, now Israel has sunk to an all-time low. There's corruption in the priesthood, violence and immorality are rampant in the people. It's a dark time. And then one day, the enemies of Israel, the Philistines, attack. And that one day, somebody had a bright idea. Oh, 
remember Jericho, they said, because the battle on that day wasn't going well. Let's get out the ark, they said. That box is powerful, they said. If we bring out the box, we can't lose, they said. So what did they do? Oh, they brought out the box, and not only... Did the battle not go the way they expected? Not only did they lose the battle, not only were they slaughtered by the Philistines, but the Philistines took the box, took the ark back to their capital. The Philistines stuck it in their temple, basically to show their God was more powerful than Israel's God. But then... The Philistine temple started to fall apart. Big statues are crumbling. The Philistines who touched the ark were getting sick and they couldn't take it after a while. And they got so bad, they basically shoved it on a cart between two cows and sent it back to Israel like a bad Christmas sweater they couldn't wait to get rid of, right? I mean, it's actually supposed to be funny and it kind of is. And then years later, the Israelites get it, and excuse me, then the Israelites get it back. And years later, David tries to bring it to Jerusalem. And one of the guys who's handling it, an unlucky fella named Uzzah, touches it and dies. I mean, this stuff is crazy. One time you win with the ark. Another time you lose with the ark. Another time somebody touches it, nothing happens. Another time somebody touches it and they die. I mean, let's ask the question everybody's thinking. What's up with that? I mean, what's what's going on? And the answer is, Israel thought if they could control the ark, they could control God. See, they thought if they had the box, they'd win, succeed, triumph. But it's maddening. I mean, something different happened every time that box came out, right? I mean, something different happened every time. And the reason something happened... Something different happened every time somebody got near the ark was God showing that you and I, that people cannot control him, cannot control this God. We can't own him. We can't make him do what we want him to do. See, this God, the biblical God, oh, he's not a genie in a bottle. Uh, he's not a star you wish upon. He's not a lucky rabbit's foot. He's not even the lucky dice, you know, fuzzy dice on your rearview mirror. No, he can't be controlled, manipulated, bribed, tricked, or coerced. In other words, you can't put God in a box. You can't put God in a box. You can't make him move when you want, do what you want. He's not magic, but he is supernatural. He's not magic. But he is supernatural. You say, man, it's a good thing we don't do that as Christians anymore, right? Really, it's amazing. I mean, as a pastor, I get sent books beyond books I can possibly read. Links to videos and articles and shows and YouTube stuff and DVD series. And do you know what almost all of them say? I can predict it. Almost all of them say this. If you'll do church like this, you'll succeed. If you'll just do it like that, that's what will bring the presence of God, right? And the reason will say, you're not reaching me or people like me. The reason I'm not coming to your church is because you don't do X. But if you did, I'd come and so would everybody else. Sometimes they'll say stuff like, if we just did hymns, right, all would be well with our souls, right? Listen, <laughs> sorry. I love hymns. We did one this morning. If you're lucky, there may be one more today. But to think that hymns, right, are the solution or a type of song for what ails the modern church is what is like the people of Israel thinking they're going to bring the box, like a jukebox, out to battle, right? I mean, punch play on the song, and it's gonna, the box is going to do the work. Listen, it's sad and unfortunate. 
but the largest generation in history, American history, to walk away from the church grew up singing hymns. See, hymns aren't a silver bullet. And almost every blogger link book says, if you'll do this, God will come. And I understand it, especially if you've been touched by that person's ministry or that church's, you know, uh, influence on your life. You've been impacted by that guy or that gal. It's natural to sort of pick that person up like a box, right? And care. Say, listen, if our churches had this, we'd be great. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, some of you may have heard of him. He was a British pastor in London uh, for many years in the 20th century. And before that, he had pastored in Wales, sort of on the heels of something called the Welsh Revival. And the Welsh Revival was an amazing time. So many people had become Christians during the Welsh Revival. The stories from that revival, they were legendary. They were all, you know, true, I suppose. Like the true story, uh, like after the revival hit, the horses of whales that were, you know, beasts of burden, didn't know where to go, didn't know how to labor because the language of their masters had so changed. All the cursing and swearing stopped and the horses didn't know where to go or how to obey. It's a true story. But Dr. Jones, he, he, he counted, recounted years later how not only that many of the people had been converted in his church uh, through the Welsh revival, but also how hard, unfortunately, they had become to pastor and to lead because they were all saying, we've got to do church like this, right? We've got to sing those songs. When we teach that way, preach that way, that's when God comes. But listen, listen, church, apart from prayer, and the preaching of the gospel. And this is fact. There's no other correlation between revival in church history. They're all different. The only core key components are prayer and the preaching of the gospel. And to think otherwise, listen, that's to seek magic, not the supernatural. And if you're a non-Christian, you're a skeptic here today, you're saying, man, those Christians are so gullible. I mean, I could have told them that. I mean, come on, right? I could have said them all a lot of trouble. But listen, wait a minute. What's one of the main reasons people are skeptics today? One of the most consistent things, at least I hear from people is this. People will say, Morgan, you know, I, I used to believe in God, but then I prayed for something. I asked him for something, and what I asked him for didn't happen. I prayed for that person to be healed, but they died. I asked for that person or something for my career. It didn't happen. Or they'll say, I had a friend who believed in God. They asked for something. It didn't happen. And if that's how God treats his people. I want no part of it. Or in other words, they're saying this, Morgan, I rubbed the lamp and nothing happened, right? Morgan, I brought out the box, but nothing happened. I still lost. Well, listen, no wonder you or that person walked away from God or church or Christianity. There was nothing to believe in in the first place. It was magic. It wasn't real. But this God is supernatural. And these people, listen, they know this. They'd seen all that in their history. Listen, a temple was one thing. That's great. People come and sit. Woo, we like it. But the ark is dangerous, unpredictable, supernatural. God cannot be tamed or controlled. And by the way, would you really want to serve a God who could? Can you see though now, oh, we today, we've got a problem, don't we? We've got a problem. Just like these people have a problem, had a problem. Because if this God, if he can't be tamed or controlled or made to appear on command with last year's prayers or activities or that church's stuff or that speaker's notes, if you can't put God in a box, how can his presence? Which is what David is saying and the Bible insists we have to have to make it. How can his presence come? How can it come into our church? What in the world can bring or attract God's presence? Is there anything that can? 
And the answer, thankfully, is yes, which brings us finally to number three, to David's visionary prayer. David's about to pray something here. It's at the end of his life. It's the speech of his life. And here he gives us an insight into what can attract the presence of God into our lives and church. He prays this. He prays, O Lord, the God of our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, make your people always want to obey you. See to it that their love for you never changes. Give my son Solomon the wholehearted desire to obey all your commands, laws, and decrees. So what's he saying? What can bring, what can attract God's presence into your life in this, our church? Well, did you notice what kind of language that he uses there? Look, stuff like always want to obey you, wholehearted desire. In verse 17, he says, integrity, God, you're pleased with integrity. Back in verse 4, he says, God, you, you love devotion to you. Oh, what's he describing? Oh, he's describing a consecrated life. A consecrated life. Devotion, right? Uh, Obedience, wholeheartedness, integrity in all things. David is saying that the people, and he's praying that the people, and his son Solomon in particular, would have this in their life to such a degree. It would attract and keep the presence of God in their nation. And throughout the Bible and church history, that's what brings the presence of God. Not power-hungry leaders, not magic-seeking church folk, right? But consecrated people, right? People who say, God, I don't just want your stuff. I want you. God, God, I don't want to rub the lamp. I want to touch your heart. That's what brings God's presence. See, David's showing us that consecration, right? A life lived, set apart for the purpose of God, is what attracts his presence. And it's a breathtaking prayer, But if you read the whole thing, church, it's also heartbreaking. You say, why? Well, what happened after the prayer, right? I mean, did what David pray for, did it come to pass? I mean, did his son Solomon have the wholehearted desire to obey all God's commands? Did Solomon live a wholehearted, consecrated life? Well, sorry to break it to you if you never read what comes next, but spoiler alert here, everybody ready? He didn't. He didn't, and neither did the people. Because although Solomon began well, he began actually incredibly well. He finished incredibly poorly. And because, hear this, of his lack of consecration, he set the people and the nation up for failure. And after his death, the kingdom split, never to be united again until the Romans conquered them. The temple that he built was destroyed. And by the time you get to the book of Ezekiel, God said, my presence has departed from the land. And even later, when some of the Jews returned from captivity, they returned to their homeland, they rebuilt a part of the temple. There was no glory, no presence, no light, no king to lead them, right? Just walls and stone and an empty throne. How could this be? You gotta ask, did God's promise to them fail, right? Because after all, back in chapter 28, verse four, look at what David said. He said, he knows that God, the Lord, the God of Israel, had chosen me from among all my father's family, listen, to be king over Israel. How long? Forever. You say, well, okay, yeah. That's kind of like ancient, you know, Bible hyperbole, oh, king, live forever. But no, no, no. God said, David, someone from your family, will be king over my kingdom forever. So what happened? What did God do? He answered David's prayer. 
but in a way no one could have expected. Because one day, centuries later, another descendant of David, the Bible calls him the son of David. Jesus of Nazareth stood in front of the place the Jews called their temple. The place where there was only darkness, no presence, no light, no glory. And he said stuff like this. He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me has God's light. He said things like, destroy this temple. I'll raise it up in three days. What's he talking about? Oh, not a building, not a building, but his own body, his own body. What did it mean? It meant that the presence of God was breaking back into the world at this point in history, into humanity. How? Oh, hear this. Here's how it came. Through the wholehearted consecration of the one man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the greater man and son of peace who loved the Lord his God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength, his neighbor at himself who obeyed every decree, law, and command God ever gave. But what did he get for it? As he hung bleeding and dying on a Roman cross, he got the absence of the presence of God. He said, where are you now, God? He screamed it. Why? Because in that moment, what was coming upon him was what we deserve for all the ways we try to manipulate God with our magic and our motives, the ways we try to conjure him, all the ways we make idols of people and stuff and other leaders, and all the ways we try to play God in our own lives. He got that, the absence though he obeyed perfectly so that we now, we could be God's consecrated people and so that God's presence and spirit could come into our lives. What do you really need this year? 2016. What does this church need? 2016. It's God's presence. How do we get it? First, we get it. First, we get it from the truly consecrated son, Jesus. And as we see him consecrating himself for us, setting himself apart, now we consecrate ourselves for him. Now we pray. Now we push out our excuses and our distractions and we say, whatever it takes, Jesus, oh, I'll do for you. Now we look at him, right? We see how much he loves us, what he's done for us. And we ask, what can I, what can we do for you? We look at what he's given us, his presence, his spirit, adoption, entrance into eternity. And then we ask, what can we give for you? See, God's not after, ultimately, inspiration. He's after consecration in our lives. You want to know what real, real revival looks like? It doesn't look like goosebumps on a Sunday, although I, I hope you get those, right? It looks like consecration. It looks like you and me getting up tomorrow morning and reading our Bibles and leading our families, being faithful in the community God's put us in, loving, crying out for our neighbors. Listen, that's revival. Give your people, David prayed, wholehearted devotion. Oh, church, we can have it. We can have over and over and over to the degree that we look at and allow Jesus to be our king, our great king, whose presence holds us together. Amen. Take my life and let it be, and the hymn goes, consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands. Let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee. Let's pray as we close. Oh, Lord, we come now and we look ahead of the the coming year. 
Lord, we recognize what we need more than that promotion or our circumstances even to change. We, Lord, we do want to pray and believe you for those things. Lord, we pray. First, I pray as a leader and a pastor here for, uh, for consecrated lives. My life first. My family's first. For a people whose hearts are consecrated set apart for you. Lord, I pray we'd all be able to look around at our lives like David and pray that prayer. Lord, give us wholehearted devotion. Lord, I'm praying this morning as we as a church, as we look at Jesus, we consecrate ourselves for him and for the sake of those who are coming next. In Jesus' name, amen.